Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. This is the second week of a series that we're doing called Take Heart. I love that, that you know, title, Take Heart, because sometimes you need somebody to say, don't give up, right? don't quit, take heart. God's not done with you. It's only the beginning of the story. And we've been going through the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And we're going to continue in the second part of that message. I'm still in the first chapter. And we'll get into the text in a few minutes. But I want to start with a little story that illustrates where we're going this morning. Pastor Mark Coleman loves to hike. He's kind of an outdoorsman. And he passed on that love of hiking to his son Peter. When Peter was only five years old, Coleman planned an easy hike on the northern part of the Appalachian Trail. Easy. Coleman would lead them around a mountain to a lake in Vermont. And there they would spend the night. He made thorough preparation for the trip, including coaching his son. Over and over again, he told his son that it would be tough. And it was okay to be tired, but they had to keep on walking. They had to keep on walking. They had to keep on walking. Say it with me. They had to keep on walking. Unfortunately, the walking was longer and tougher than expected, Because Coleman, the dad, the big meanie, led them over a mountain, over the mountain, not around it. That's a good dad for you. The trail was steep and broken. Little Peter stumbled. Remember, this is a five-year-old boy. He stumbled time after time on loose rocks, but they kept on walking. The hike was a burden, not a joy, but they kept on walking. Peter, little Peter, fell so many times that he ripped the knees on his jeans, but he kept on walking. Finally, after one fall too many, little Peter sat down on the ground and cried. As Mark approached him and began to speak, Peter cut him off. I know, Dad, it's okay to cry as long as I keep on walking. You know, as I get into the message today, there's some of you that you've sat down on the trail and you started to cry. And I want you to know that it's okay. It's okay in the season that you're in to feel like I can't do it anymore, I can't go any further, I'm done. But I want to encourage you this morning because God is with you to keep on walking, to not give up, to not quit. Some of you, you're ready to give up on life. There may be even a person in this room today that's been contemplating ending it. And I know it's scary to go that direction, right? It's, it's kind of scary to go down that road, but I want to tell you something. God wants you to keep on walking. Don't write your own story. Let Him write it. He's the God that redeems our failures, the opposition that comes against our life, and even our loss and our pain. Can I encourage you to get back up and keep on walking? That's where we're going this morning. Keep on walking. And here's my big thought for this whole book and for today. And the big thought is simply this. As we partner with others, that's our church family and people around us. As we partner with others to know Jesus and make Him known in the world, He'll give us great joy 
in spite of our suffering. And you know, that's, that's a funny concept because when we think of joy and we think of suffering, we think they're heading in opposite directions and they're not compatible. But when we look in the scripture, one of the things that we see is that joy and suffering are like two train tracks. They go side by side and they carry us into the purpose of God. And they are compatible. In fact, the scripture seems to indicate that oftentimes the greatest joy we will ever experience as we walk with Jesus will be in the midst of our suffering. That's kind of weird. It almost seems a little off, doesn't it? And yet God has joy for you right now in the season you're walking through. You might be in the deepest, darkest valley you've ever been in. You might feel alone and forsaken. But I've got news for you. There's a God who walks with you. There is one who went into the Garden of Gethsemane and poured out his own blood in prayer. One who suffered. One who even hung on a cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he's walking with you in the deepest, darkest place. The psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I'll tell you something, if you know in your knower, in the deepest part of you that God is with you, you can walk through any deep, dark valley, even the valley of the shadow of death, amen? So I want to just kind of uh, review a little bit before we get into the points I want to share with you today, where we went last week. Last week I gave you a little bit of background to the book of Philippians, and I think it's important that we understand the text and the context. I was sharing that with you last week. We understand what the scripture is saying in light of the time and the people it was written to and what was going on. So first of all, Philippi was a city in Macedonia, Greece. It was the first church in Europe, okay? And Paul had started this church in A.D. 50, Now, to give you a sense of context, around A.D. 32, 33, or up to 37, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, depending on what scholar you read. So, less than 20 years after Jesus physically was on the earth, Paul the Apostle started a church in the city of Philippi, and he was in jail. Think about it. And when he wrote this letter, it was about 10 to 12 years after he started the church in jail. He was under house arrest in Rome. And people were visiting him, and he was waiting his trial. And he wrote people to encourage them because they were suffering. The people in Philippi were suffering persecution for their faith. Philippi was a very patriotic city. It was a place where soldiers had retired. And those retirees were really nationalistic about Rome. And here Christianity was coming along and it was saying, we don't worship Caesar, we worship Jesus as Lord. So they refused to say Caesar is Lord and they would only acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and they were beginning to experience pushback. And so Paul's letting him know, there are four examples in this letter for you of people that suffer and still have joy. And the first example, Paul said, is me. I'm in jail and I'm still happy. I'm still rejoicing in God. And then secondly, his disciple, Timothy. And then the the Philippians had a friend named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus had brought a financial gift from Philippi to Paul while he was under house arrest. And while he was visiting Paul, or shortly thereafter, he got very sick to the point of almost dying. And he came out of that near-death experience and was being now sent back to the people with this letter from Paul saying, thank you. And Paul writes him, and you'll see this later in the book, Paul writes him to say, Epaphroditus suffered greatly, and yet he still had joy. And then lastly, he gives them the example of Jesus. 
And we'll see in chapter 2 that Jesus is central to everything that's in the book of Philippians. Jesus is central to everything in our life. And he's the greatest example in history of somebody who maintained their joy in the midst of loss and suffering. Amen? Here's some of the key ideas that we looked at last week. First of all, the one somebody quoted this morning, God will complete what he begins. Aren't you glad? And we learned that that will be on both sides of eternity. So in our lives, in some of the cases in this room, there are promises, there are things that you have in your heart, and some of those things will happen now. Some of those things will happen on this side of death. You'll experience God's promises coming to pass. But in some cases, some of the things you're holding out for, some of the dreams that you've had in your heart, some of the things that you felt like God showed you, they, they won't happen on this side of eternity. All of the people in the Bible, you see this with Abraham, you see it with the different patriarchs and the prophets, they often died in hope of a future vision that they reached out for and weren't quite able to hold, take a hold of on this side of eternity. But after death, God brought it all into focus. And so here's the guarantee. He'll complete what he began. Some of it will be completed on this side. Some of it on the other side. Amen? And then secondly, we learn that God's plans happen in partnership with others. As I told you last week, even Han Solo had Chewbacca. Right? This is not a solo relationship. We're not Han Solo solo. Right? We, we don't do this alone. This walk we have with Jesus Christ is meant to be lived in partnership with other people. And that's why we have churches. Some people say, I don't believe in organized religion. What do you want? Disorganized religion? I mean, come on. What is, what, what is organized religion? Organized religion is this. People that love Jesus and follow him want to gather with other people that love Jesus and follow him so they can keep each other going because sometimes it's really hard to do this thing called walking with Jesus and you can't do it alone. You need the help of other people. That's how the church came to be. The church came to be because people that love Jesus wanted to get together and talk to other people who love Jesus and they wanted to talk about what Jesus had done for them and they wanted to share the scripture that Jesus had spoken to them and before you know it, the church came to be. So that's why we have church. We have church so we can get with people and love Jesus together, which takes me into this week. And that is the bottom line that I want to share with you this week is we can be joyful because God's plans always prevail no matter what the opposition. Okay, so my, my first point is God's plans advance in spite of suffering and pretenders. Suffering and pretenders. And I want you to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It'll be on the screen. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along in the Bible, you can do that as well. Paul is writing and he says this, I want you to notice. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's he talking about? I'm in jail and believe it or not, it's actually making things advance. That's weird. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's he saying? The very Roman guards that are watching over him are being witnessed to about the gospel and even they know that Paul is one who serves Jesus. In fact, we we go on to learn later that it looks as though some of them came to faith. So Paul's preaching to all the guards. He's telling everybody that his imprisonment is for Christ. And verse 14 says this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So now what's he saying? My imprisonment is encouraging others to be bolder. 
Now, oftentimes what happens in our lives is we see somebody go through suffering and it can cause us to become timid. We see someone go through, you know, pushback. Maybe you're on a job and you see somebody do something right. They stand for righteousness and they suffer. They lose their job or they end up getting docked pay or something happens. And you think, I'm not going to do the right thing. I'm going to go along with the status quo. I'm going to lie and I'm going to cheat a little bit. And we back off. But Paul's saying that he suffered for the gospel and his imprisonment was actually inspiring people to be bolder than ever before. And that's the way it should be. Verse 15 then, he says something really profound. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, the ones from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of, listen to this, selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that means to be pretenders, or in truth, Christ, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Wow! So, so think about this. Out of this text, think about these different points here. Imprisonment or difficulty cannot ultimately keep God's message from advancing or impacting even your critics. Nothing can stop God's word. Nothing can stop God's plan. Let me say it again. No thing can stop God's word. No thing can stop God's plan. Nothing. Say it with me. Nothing. All right. Man-made limitations and barriers cannot keep God's plans from going forward. Prison would seem like a formidable barrier, wouldn't you think? But Paul assures the Philippian disciples that his imprisonment has been a way to actually launch others to do the gospel work. Whatever chains or barriers you may feel around God's plans for your life, God will use them to further His purpose. I want you to think about your own life right now. Are any of you in this room feeling like your life has lids and limitations on it in God? Are any of you feeling like you can't move forward? Are any of you feeling like man-made limitations are stopping you? And then now, now, this has to be because your desire is to do the will of God. It might, you, know, you might be experiencing opposition, and the opposition you're experiencing is God. Because you're trying to do your own thing, and it's going to hurt you and your family and the people in your life, and the Lord is putting barriers in your life, okay? So, look, if God's resisting you, it's a losing battle. Just put your arm behind your back and say, uncle, and give up. And do it quickly, right? We have a friend who used to say all the time, die quickly. Right? In other words, just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Okay? Do it. Just do it. Does that make sense to anybody? Here's the good news. If it's the will of God and if it's the purpose of God in your life and God wants you to do it and you feel like these limitations that people are putting on me are stopping it, let me assure you, if it's in the will of God, nothing can stop God's purpose from advancing. Sometimes the limitations we feel are the way we learn to push back the way we learn to develop muscles, right? Think about the story of the butterfly and the caterpillar in the cocoon, right? You know, I know it's a, a kind of a cliche, corny, cheesy example, but you know that that caterpillar in that cocoon doesn't need your help. If you intervene and you break that cocoon open and you let that butterfly go because you have compassion, your compassion dooms the caterpillar, and the butterfly. Because it's in the process of resistance. 
It's in the process of that, that butterfly trying to break out that the right hormones and chemicals go into the wings and cause the wings to be strengthened so that when it does burst out of the cocoon, it has the ability to fly. If you stop that process, you abort it, and that butterfly will never fly, and some other critter will eat it, right? So here's the point. Some of you feel like there are barriers around your life stopping you And I want you to know that the very resistance in the midst of that, the very struggle you're going through in prayer, the very the the very sense that, oh man, I gotta get out of this, Lord, help me. That process is preparing you for the day you fly. Secondly, my sub my sub number two, God's message and plans in your life will advance and encourage others when you continue to trust Him in spite of the difficulty. You know, I've learned in my own life, I need examples. It's beautiful. Skip and Gail are here. They're examples to me, right? They stuck it out for many years in difficult situations, and every time I'd see Skip, it'd be like joy was right in the midst of me. He's like, I'm believing God. God's faithful. I know He's faithful. God's good. I know He's going to do it, Doug. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like, but God's going to come through. When I see people struggling, and yet I see joy, and I see faith in them, it makes me go, I can do it too. Bless God. Right? I'm able. And we need those examples. And I want to tell you, when, when others make it and trust God in spite of the difficulty, it encourages. And Paul's saying, others have been encouraged by my testimony in prison. So let me just remind you, you're being watched. And that's not to be creepy. Some of you are like, yeah, I know, that person on Facebook is driving me crazy. They're a stalker. Okay? But what I'm saying is people are observing your life. And you could be the example, even the way you're dealing with suffering right now could be the example that they need to see that God is faithful. Thirdly, God's message and plans will advance even when fake people and pretenders with wrong motives speak in Jesus' name. You know, we live in a time of many great pretenders who preach and lead with wrong motives and methods. Everywhere you look today, there are false prophets, false teachers, greedy prosperity preachers who are out there distorting and twisting the reality of God's nature and character, telling you that you don't have to suffer, telling you you just need more faith, telling you everything will go great, you'll have every, you, you know, you're not only going to have everything you need, but you can get that, that airplane that you want, you can get, you know, you can get whatever you want in God. And I want to tell you, they are distorting the truth of the gospel and they are doing it for selfish gain, and it's evil. Don't believe the lies. There's people that are defenders of that kind of stuff, and that's a lie. It's a lie. I can never, ever see any example anywhere in the New Covenant, New Testament Scripture of somebody like the Apostle Paul saying, give me an offering so I don't have to walk any longer. I want to ride in, a, in the top chariot that's out there. You just don't see it. It's not of God. And there are distorters, and there are pretenders and there are greedy people who see the gospel as a means to an end, and the end is their own comfort and their own blessing, and it's not of God. I'm calling it out because it's false. But here's the beauty. Truth and authentic followers of Jesus will ultimately overcome the false ones. Paul is just happy that the gospel's being preached. Here's the thing that Paul knew. Even if I, listen, if I'm a fake and a pretender, and I'm standing up here, and that's what I really am in my essence, here's the power of God's word. The very fact that I'm preaching the Bible. And here's what's amazing. 
Just the fact that I'm speaking scripture to you and talking about it is powerful enough, even if I'm a scoundrel, to go into a human heart out here and change it. So Paul's saying, even though there are some pretenders and some fakers, God's word is powerful and I'm just glad Christ is being preached. Even when it's done from wrong motives. The beauty is, is when Christ has worked a real work of grace in somebody and they preach and teach, not only does the word change, but there's something, there's a weight and an authority upon the word that goes into the human heart because it's real and it produces a beautiful contrast. And I tell you, we need to see a contrast in our culture. The fakes are out there. But let me, can I tell you, if you're a skeptic, even if you're here today and you're like, I don't know about this organized religion thing. Maybe you're a guest and you're like, you know, you kind of came in here kicking and screaming and you feel like there's skid marks all the way through the door, right? And you got in here and you're sitting down and you're like, okay, another, you know, preacher. I wonder if he wants my money. If I wonder if he wants to get in my pocket or whatever. You might be thinking about church and about religion. I just want to encourage you. There is a false thing out there. There are false false preachers out there, but there are real men and women of God, right? There are real servants of the Most High God. There are real preachers and teachers and prophets and apostles and evangelists, and they're out there. And I believe we got a staff full of them, and I'm looking at a couple right there that serve faithfully in this community. There is the real deal, and they provide the beautiful contrast. Amen. Takes me to my second point. I know you're thinking, you just said your second point. That was my sub point. Here's my second main point. Jesus Christ is true life and more powerful than any suffering we can go through. Amen? Amen. Philippians 1, verses 20 through 23. I want you to look at this with me. It's so powerful what Paul says here. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What perspective. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So look, if I'm going to hang around here and continue to live in this body, there's going to be fruitful labor that comes out of my life. And he goes on to say, yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. I'm having a hard time making up my mind. Do I want to die now and go be with the Lord, or do I want to stay here? Now, most of us would be grasping for life here because we have a wrong perspective. We think this is all there is to it. Paul's saying, I would rather pass on to the reward that God has for me, but later he he goes on to say this. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Say, what? Say with me now. Say, what? Are you kidding me? That's perspective. That is perspective. He had a sense of what life was really about. And life is about a person, and that person's name is Jesus. He's saying all that we do and all that we live for is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. You know, Philippians is a Jesus-centered letter. All through the book of Philippians, the name of Jesus is weaved through. He permeates it. Philippians is baptized in Jesus. Did you know there are 104 verses in Philippians and 51 references to Jesus by name? Think about that. Almost every other verse Jesus is mentioned, if you take it and average it out. He's the source and goal for all that we live for. 
As you get to know Him more deeply and intimately, you will see that everything you actually desire and want is found in Him. He is life. He is wisdom. He is love. He is friendship. Are you lonely? He is purity and holiness. He is joy. He is salvation. He is forgiveness. He is grace. He is mercy. He is purpose. He is truth. He is guidance. So I've really come to learn in my life that when I pray, I'm not just saying, Lord, guide me today and give me wisdom, but rather, Jesus, be my wisdom and be my guidance. Because everything that I want is found in Him. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. Jesus is the whole kitten caboodle baby. He's the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, right? He's the source and the goal. He's the prize at the end. And He's the one at the beginning shooting the gun and saying go. He's everything. And when you get that, and you learn that this isn't just about religion. Listen, if you're a part of our church and you came to get religion, I hope you're, you're really disappointed. I hope your desire to get religion gets really destroyed and disappointed because we're not here because of religion. Yeah, you say, yeah, you are. This is Christianity. Let me tell you what Christianity is. Christianity is not a system. It's not even a series of doctrines. Doctrine is important. Theology is important, but only if it points to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. All theology, all doctrine finds its meaning in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of the world. So if you want to know what we're about, is it like, you know, you're doing good works, you're just trying to be good, you're trying to have a positive life. Uh, no, no, and no. We are here because we want to know Him and make Him known because we've come to see that He is the meaning of life. He said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What's he saying? If you, if you want to know how we get into the Father heart of God and know God, you come through me. Amen. I was excited about it. In his book, The Colors of Hope, Richard Dahlstrom describes what he calls the safety first mentality. Listen carefully to this because I want to challenge some of you in this room. Because I believe that right in this room, and I've been there before, there are people who are living in the safety first mentality. Let me describe what it is. According to this perspective, the key to living well is living safely. So Dahlstrom writes this, lock your doors at night. I got to give a disclaimer, I got to back up. I'm not saying be stupid. I'm not saying be unwise. I know you got families, I know you got kids. But I want to tell you, if your focus in life is your own security and comfort, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment and a fall. You were saved by Jesus and you were created by the Lord to give your life fully for Him and to even spend your life on Him. And your goal isn't to live as long as you possibly can and retire with the biggest retirement account you can so you can be happy and you can travel around and spend your kids' inheritance. Your goal in life is to be spent for Jesus Christ. That's, that's a foreign language in American Christianity. So let me go on. So Dahlstrom writes, lock your doors at night, get an alarm system, save 10% and make sure your investment is insured. Take your vitamins, your minerals, your omega-3s, your ginkgo biloba, your St. John's wort, right? 
you could add, make sure that you're using plenty of essential oils, right? Whatever it is, right? Eat lots of cellular fibers. You know, that's important. Exercise. Get eight hours of sleep. Go to church regularly, being certain to drive carefully both on the way there and on the way home. It's best if your car's the biggest. That way you'll be the safest. Don't go on mission trips to places where you might contact staph infection, malaria, intestinal parasites, or face a terrorist plot. Risky hobbies? Forget it. Read books instead. Eat organic. Get a colonoscopy. There, that should do it. Now you're safe, right? Well, not, not really. Not, not so fast. Pistol Pete Maravich, extraordinary athlete and specimen of fine health, died at the age of 40 while shooting hoops. He didn't smoke or drink. Meanwhile, the oldest woman on record, Jean Kelment, who died at the age of 122, stopped smoking at 117. (laughs) Why? Because her eyesight was so bad she could no longer see clearly enough to light her cigarettes. The safety first posture is wrong on several levels. First and most significantly, the good life is never defined by Jesus in terms of either length or comfort. Hello? To the contrary, Jesus says that those who seek to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their lives, spilling them out generously in service to others because of love for God and humanity, will find their lives. Now, I've got something I want to share with you. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. here's, Here's my message, church. Your life isn't for you. It's not for your comfort, for your own joy, for your own pleasure. Comfort and joy and pleasure are byproducts of actually living rightly. Let me tell you who you live for. First of all, you live to the glory of God. Secondly, you live to be spent on others. You're not for you. Your job isn't to just get as comfortable as you can and have as nice locked down life as you can and, well, to hell with my neighbor because they play their music too loud at night and I think they're using drugs over there. Just saying. Rather, it should be, oh, my neighbors need Jesus and that's why I'm here and I'm going to serve them and I'm going to love them and I'm going to pour my life out that they might come to know Him. That's why I live and that's why we live. We are to be spent for the sake of of others. Amen. And Paul goes on to say, whether we live or die, we belong to Jesus and we're with Him. And you know, that includes one day He's going to carry us over. And you might think this is weird, but I think about death pretty regularly. Because in America, we have a denial about death. We hide it away. We keep it over in the corners. We don't look at it face to face because we act like it's not going to happen to us. <laughs> we're deceived. But I've lost several people in my life that were very close to me. Two sisters, one by a drug overdose, one by a drunk driving accident. My stepmom by breast cancer. My best friend and co-pastor by um, colon cancer. And the list goes on and on. People all around me in my life have died. And people close to me. And friends in this church over the years. And I've learned something, that death is one of those things that kind of can sneak up on you, right? It can happen to you while you're driving down the road. And we live as though it's never going to happen to us. And we live with a latent fear in the back of our mind you know, we, we can trust that Jesus will help us today with our bills, but do we trust Him to carry us over? And I just want to encourage you, for you to live as Christ, to die as gain, and He's going to be with you now, and He's going to be with you tomorrow, and if tomorrow is the day you face Him, He's going to walk you over. Right? You can trust Him. He doesn't abandon you at death. He holds your hand, and He carries you over. You know why? He's already been there, and He beat it.
he beat it. And in the same way he came back from it, so are you. Woo! Take that, death. Right on. So Paul goes on to say, for him to live as Christ and his labors are for the benefit of others, so he's good. Death, life, mm, I'd like to die and be with him, but I'll hang around if it'll help you for a while, but the truth is I'd rather be with him. Wow! Takes me to my last point. We can have joy in every circumstance through Jesus. Every circumstance. Now, some people, when they hear this stuff, they think, that's a fairy tale. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how deeply I hurt. You don't know how depressed I've been. You don't understand how I've been wanting to even take my life. And you're right. I, I don't know your pain, and I don't know your joy, because every person's pain and every person's joy is unique to that person. I don't know, but I do know this. There is a long line and a long history of people who have walked closely with Jesus, and they've found that even in their deepest, darkest suffering, they could worship Him. I didn't tell this story in the first service, but I read an account, this will blow you away, I read an account a few years ago about these South Korean missionaries that went to Afghanistan, and they were in Afghanistan doing missions work, and the Taliban came upon them and rounded them up, and they were, they were captured by the Taliban, and they were put in prison, and they suffered torture, and they didn't eat, and terrible things were done to them, and eventually... A bunch of them got out. Some of them died in prison, and they got out. And about a year after they got out, one of them was being interviewed. And the person interviewing was saying, you know, what terrible things you went through. And wow, it must be so good to be home and so good to be back to life. And this is what the person, the South Korean missionary that was in prison said to them. He said, actually, I missed the prison. Can you imagine the shock? Say, what? Yeah, I, I miss it because I experienced an intimacy and a closeness with the presence of Jesus in that prison cell that I've never experienced at any other time in my life. And I would choose that intimacy over what I have right now. Right? You see, Jesus wants to be a joy and a pleasure for you in the midst of your deepest, darkest times. And He's there. Here's the problem. We don't avail ourselves of Him. We don't turn to Him then. We think, you failed me. You didn't come through. I'm done. And we don't realize that that's the time that we need to be driven to Him, not away from Him. I want you to notice what Paul says here, and I'm going to go through this quickly because I'm running out of time. Verse 3, and I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. He's in prison. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Did you know joy and rejoicing are key words in Philippians, the letter written from prison about suffering? They're key words. Joy is used five times, while rejoice is used nine times in the book of Philippians. And Paul is modeling to people the possibility of maintaining great joy in the midst of difficulty and suffering. He's saying a prisoner can rejoice. Joy comes from knowing Jesus intimately and trusting Him to bring good out of suffering and good out of our pain. I love what C.S. Lewis said, and I shared this quote last week, and I want to share it again, but this is what he shares in The Great Divorce. This is what mortals misunderstand. 
they say of some temporary suffering, and think about the worst suffering you go through on planet earth, torture, death, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, think of it, okay? They say of some temporary suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. There's nothing that heaven or any time in the future could ever bring me that will make up for that pain. Not knowing, this is what he says, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. What's he saying? God is timeless and he can go into our pain and suffering and when we stand before him, he's going to have the ability somehow to take all the garbage we went through when we were being raised up as children, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the times you were told over and over, you're not worth anything and I hate you. I wish you'd never been born. This is for somebody. The times that you'd been made to feel like you were garbage, like you were trash, all of that stuff. You think nothing can make up for the pain when that man abused me. Nothing could make up for the pain when I was told I'm a loser. Nothing can make up for the pain when I lost that loved one. Nothing can do it. But I'm telling you that in a future day, God's going to make all time work backwards. And He's going to take all your pain and He's going to bring it together and He's going to offer it to you as beauty, as glory, as joy. And you're going to see it all clearly and you're going to go, now I get it. Somehow God, only you alone could do this. Somehow you brought me beauty for ashes and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and you took what was ugly and you made it beautiful. Amen. Remember this. He will complete what He began in you. And I know there are people in this room right now, you're going through the darkest season you've ever gone through in your marriage. You're going through the darkest time you've ever gone through financially. You're facing a physical thing and you don't know it could end in your death. But I want to assure you, whether you live or whether you die, you're Christ. And I want to assure you, God will make good of it because He's faithful and true and He's not a man that He should lie. And He loves you. Amen.